90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Matumbo embraces the ball in the unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! You are tuned in to the 90s Basketball Show. My name is Brian Swain. Welcome and thank you for listening. Now we're in the middle of the 2020 WNBA Finals between the Las Vegas Aces and Seattle Storm. So what better time than to look back at the early days of the league, which launched in 1997 and has since become arguably the most successful women's pro league that we've ever seen. And to do that, I'm thrilled to welcome a tremendous leader in sports. She's a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, the first president of the WNBA, and now the current commissioner of the Big East Conference, Val Ackerman. Val, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Great, Brian. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, I really appreciate uh, getting the opportunity to speak with you. So for people who wouldn't remember seeing you play, you played at the University of Virginia. You're actually, um, I was reading up, you were the first player to score 1,000 points for that team in their career. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was an honor to be playing at UVA. And at that, that time, Title IX was just getting off the ground. So there weren't so many scholarships to go around. But uh, a great experience that I think about often. And glad that I'm sort of reunited with that side of things now with my current work at the Big East. Uh, now, you've been with the Big East for seven years now, about? Yes, exactly. And this has to be probably the most interesting year of all of them, I would imagine. Well, interesting is kind. It's been, uh, no question, a challenge, eventful and challenging last few months um, as all sports organizations are coping with, um, with COVID and COVID fallout and trying to figure out how we can get our seasons going. Um, so no, no shortage of... Uh, of uncertainty, unfortunately, but lots of activity as, again, we try to figure out how we can get college sports uh, up and running this fall and beyond. And as we move closer to that point, some really exciting developments going on in the Big East because you have the University of Connecticut is returning to the Big East after uh, several years being away. Now, how did that come to pass that uh, you're bringing UConn back into the fold? Well, um, you know, we the Big East has been around for a long time. We're um, we're one of 32 Division One conferences in the USA uh, with a proud history in the sport of basketball. Um, the conference was founded in 1979 as a basketball-centric league group of schools. Um, over time, it morphed to include football schools, and there was a lot of change, particularly in the last 15 years or so, that led to the current configuration of 10 schools. Um, but last year, uh, we made the decision to bring back to the conference the University of Connecticut, which was a charter member in 79, spent many years in the Big East uh, before changes um, of seven years ago that, that led again to the current makeup. So very exciting to bring them back. Um, they're a proud basketball school, lots of history, um, lots of old rivalries with uh, Big e, current Big East schools that we look forward to reigniting. And, um, you know, a proud history in basketball, including in women's basketball, 
um, where head coach Gino Oriema has piloted um, literally one of the greatest women's basketball programs of all time, perennial national champion, um, always a contender. And Coach Oriema, of course, was a, um, a national team coach for USA um, and brought gold home in that role. So very accomplished. Um, and so on both the men's and women's fronts, uh, we think we have a lot to look forward to in basketball. But again, having them back uh, was an exciting announcement and, and culminated with their formal entry this past July. And of course, UConn has been really a force in women's basketball now for, I would say, really a, a generation of players. What does this do in terms of not only the level of competition, but the profile for the Big East in uh, speaking specifically to women's basketball to have a program, the level of UConn back with you? Well, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge plus for sure, Brian. Um, I'll, you know, I'll note that the quote old Big East, um, the league prior to the configuration of seven years ago was a women's basketball power in U.S. college basketball um, led by schools like UConn um, and Rutgers. Um, Notre Dame was a longtime Big East school before that school um, left for the Atlantic Coast Conference where, where they're, you know, they're now a member. Um, Louisville, which became a power as a Big East school. So there was a proud history, but again, because of all this change, those schools are no longer affiliated with our league. So with, in, in the last seven years, it's been other schools in our conference that have risen to the, to the fore, led by DePaul, which is based in Chicago, and Marquette, which is based in Milwaukee. Um, and so now with UConn back, I think there may be a rearranging of the hierarchy but our schools nonetheless welcome the competition. You know, I do think UConn will raise the bar. Um, you know, for us, we'll uh, have our other schools sort of, you know, aspiring higher, hopefully, to knock them off. And in terms of national profile, you know, you're right. I mean, when you have a, a juggernaut like that in your league, it, it definitely brings attention to your conference at large. So, um, you know, all, all good. And I'll, I'll just add one more thing. We recently announced in, in large part because of UConn's re-entry that we're bringing our conference tournament to Connecticut. Um, we'll be playing at the Mohegan Sun Arena, um, which has a long history of supporting women's basketball, home right now of the Connecticut Sun of the WNBA. Um, so they're very familiar um, with women's basketball and have really capitalized on the strong interest in that state in the USA and that segment of the sport. So that was a good announcement for us. So we'll begin a three-year run in Connecticut for our tournament uh, starting in March. So lots of things to look forward to on that front. It is a sellout and then some. They have had to open the upper decks to accommodate ticket demand and expecting a crowd of some 12,000 people. All of them here to witness the latest chapter in the history of women's sports, the debut of the WNBA. Of course, I'd like to talk about your time in the WNBA. The WNBA very soon here is going to be awarding its championship for the 24th time. And you were there for the first one. You were there for the first several ones. When you hear that, though, that it's been a, more than a generation, really, that this league has been going. We now have players in the league who weren't even born when this first started. What that must mean for you to, to see this, having been someone who was there and built it from the ground up? Well, when you put it that way, it makes me feel really old. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But yeah, I've got my own yardstick because when I've got two daughters um, who are now um, almost 28 and almost 26, and they were infants 
when the WNBA launched, uh, three and one to be exact. So that was, you know, my early years as a parent were juggling, um, you know, uh, bringing up my daughters with my husband and then, of course, birthing the WNBA when we launched in 1997. But we really, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, of, um, of the longevity of the league. I think that alone is a huge accomplishment. There were more than a few naysayers when the league launched. I didn't think it would last more than a year or two. Um, but we had a good plan. Um, we had great leadership um, in David Stern, who was the man who really brought NBA owners to the table to support the league. Um, I had a, an exceptional staff at the league office. We had many committed people at the team level. And I think at you know, that point in history, mid-90s, um, it really coincided with sort of the elevation of women's basketball at the collegiate level back to UConn. I'll credit them for getting it on the map um, in the modern era back in the early 90s with great teams that won national championships and importantly energized ESPN. Um, which took a shine to the property. And then, you know, for that reason, in part because of UConn, Tennessee, and other programs blew out the women's final four um, and made that, um, you know, an event which I think is still ranks among the top sporting events in the country. And so uh, to be there at the beginning was very exciting and, and to see how far the league has, has come has been, um, has been tremendous. It's interesting you mentioned that because I believe UConn's first women's national championship for basketball was in 1995. That was the year they had that unbeaten season and the WNBA launched its first season in 1997. But when did you actually first get involved with the WNBA? Because I was imagining there'd be a lot of work before you got to that throwing up the opening tip in that first game there, LA and New York. Right, 19, June of 97, exactly. Um, well, there was a long runway, run, run up, runway and run up for, for it, Brian. Um, it really, the, you know, the seeds got planted. Really, um, you mentioned, you know, the UConn National, the, the UConn National Championship runs in 94, 95. Um, at the time, the NBA was in the early stages of its relationship with USA Basketball which runs the national team program, much like Basketball Canada does in, in your part of the part of the world. And um, the idea that I and others had was to create a, um, basically a touring team of the best USA players at the time, beginning in the fall of 95, and then culminating in their participation in the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And that 10 month tour um, really set the stage for the launch of the WNBA in 97. Um, that team, that 95-96 USA team went 52-0. We constructed a, a domestic tour. We sent them globally to do games. They went to Atlanta, won the gold medal. So they were 8-0 in Atlanta. And it was really, that that was our, um, so I don't call it guinea pigs, but that was our laboratory, if you will, where we were testing while that team was doing its thing the interest in women's basketball around the country, and it was really solid. And that gave um, the NBA, I think, the confidence it needed that a, a women's NBA um, you know, was, was ready to go, could be ready to go after the Olympics were concluded. And so that's really what happened. Atlanta happened in the summer of 96. Um, I was named the president of the WNBA after having worked on that endeavor for the prior year in August of, of 96, not long after Atlanta. And then we used that 96-97 uh, winner, if you will, 
to do the legwork that you referenced to get the WNBA launched by the summer of 97. Tremendous amount of work. Um, David Stern threw the entire NBA at it, more or less. So we had the support we needed to deal with the planning and the sponsorship sales and the television arrangements and all the things that go into a sports league. And then when we launched in 97, it was just a crowning moment that really this two-year run-up of, um, of USA national team, gold medal in Atlanta, and all that planning really came to fruition. So very exciting. And uh, again, you know, just, just wonderful to see how, how the league has progressed since then. It's really unprecedented at that point in time and almost to this day still for a women's professional league of, of that magnitude to get going. What was kind of the barometer when, you, you know, you mentioned that you had the sponsorships, you had the national TV deal. What was it that you were able to use to show to, um, to parties that this will work, that this can be a success? Well, like, you know, like uh, anybody who goes into something like this, we, we had a business plan. Um, we modeled it out. We, I think the key pillars were that we were elected to play in the summertime. That was probably one of the principal, um, uh, you know, elements uh, of our, our way of doing it was that we would play in the summer, um, w which is sort of an off season in some respects for basketball, but the time of year that we thought we had a better chance mostly of getting television windows um, because uh, we would not, you know, in that time of year, be up against the NBA, college basketball, the NFL, the NHL, um, all the other leagues that go off in the fall and the winter and the spring months. We, we saw openings in the summer that didn't exist at other times of the year. So that decision to play in the summer, and that continues to be the plan. WNBA is a summertime league. So that was one. Two, because of the summer, we were able to secure prime national TV windows. So, uh, and we had three networks early on that were uh, all putting on live primetime games for us weekly, NBC, um, ESPN, and, and then Lifetime was our women's network. So there we had, you know, three games a week on national TV primetime. So that was very, made us very attractive to, to advertisers. Um, and then I think last but not least, you know, the NBA was putting its name behind it. And that, I think, connoted to um, business partners, especially that there was going to be a certain level of quality associated with the league. It was going to be a, you know, a professional operation. It was going to be a major league look. Um, and so all those, th and then, you know, David Stern, of course, you know, convincing the owners to make the investment all played in. I will say back to the UConn and Tennessee and college basketball points of earlier, it was very helpful that at that time, women's basketball was cresting. I mean, you saw you know, good numbers for attendance with the big programs. You saw uh, lots of interest in the women's final four that continues to this day. Um, you saw ESPN very energized about the property. And so that all sort of suggested to us that, you know, this sport was ready to go. I mean, basketball been played for many years, women's basketball been played for many years, kind of quietly in some ways. But we thought with the NBA behind it, but with television behind it, the summer season when there was, um, you know, sort of more wiggle room to attract an audience, we thought we had, you know, a good shot. Was it totally scientific? No, not at all. But I, um, you know, I think we had, you know, we definitely had enough to go on to convince NBA owners um, to, uh, you know, to, to allow it to happen and to put their money behind it. One of the things that I think really helped promote the league is 
thought you had just a tremendous marketing campaign. The tagline, we got next, which I thought was really cool, really effective. I think a lot of people still remember that to this day. How did that campaign come to be? And what was the message you were trying to get across with that? Well, that was done in-house for the most part. Um, NBA Entertainment, uh, which is, I'm not sure how the NBA structured anymore, but I, because I've been gone a while, but I, that was the kind of marketing arm, the broadcast arm, the video arm, promotional arm. And um, our guys, you know, in-house uh, worked it up. It was focusing on that, at that time, on the three stars that um, we kind of built the league around early on. Uh, Lisa Leslie, um, Rebecca Lobo from UConn, using, back to UConn. And then um, uh, Cheryl Swoops, of course, who had all been uh, very successful in college. All three were on the 96 USA Olympic team. Um, uh, Cheryl and Lisa in particular and went on to have incredible careers in the WNBA. Rebecca was a bit injury prone and, and didn't have quite the pro career, but critical again to our launch. Um, but we built the, the campaign uh, around them. We had a great jingle that uh, that was part of that spot. I mean, I really, I have to say, whenever I see the spot, um, I still get chills down my spine. I remember when NBA presented it to us at a, at a meeting um, in the NBA league office. And we all, you know, Rick Welts and Adam Silver and a bunch of us just looked at each other and just were like, wow, it's go time. I mean, that was amazing. And it did capture, I think, the idea. It's a playground phrase. Sort of means, hey, we got the next game. If you win it, winner take, you know, keeps the court. And it was we got next. It just seemed brilliant because it was women's basketball saying, hey, it's our turn now. So great campaign and the first of many um, that the league undertook. But, I, but I, I'm with you. I, I think it was really special and very well done by NBA Entertainment. And they have done it. The Comets are the champions of the WNBA. Of course, for both to see a champion this year. The first four years there, the Houston Comets kind of had their own little Yukon-like dynasty going on there. What can you tell me about the Houston Comets teams that made them so successful out of the gate? Well, you're right. I mean, it was a dynasty for sure and an unexpected one. Um, I, you know, I will say that um, it, they, they kind of have us to thank because um, us being the league, because um, in order to get the team stocked early on, the league actually assigned players to each of the original eight franchises. Um, at that point, the, you know, the, the, the teams were all fronted by NBA teams. They really didn't have sort of the kind of women's basketball expertise specifically they have today. And so we were doing their work for them, for them to some degree early on. And that included, as I said, assigning them a couple of players each out of the gate. So unbelievably, it was the league office that assigned them um, Cheryl Swoops and Cynthia Cooper. Um, Cheryl, you know, was kind of uh, part of the plan because she's from Texas. And um, we thought that would help us from a marketing standpoint. So we assigned her to Houston. But Cynthia Cooper had been playing in Europe for many years, not as, you know, uh, familiar to, to us as Cheryl was, who was more recent and had come off the Olympic team in 96. So we go off and we give them, give them Cheryl Swoops and Cynthia Cooper, who are this incredible dynamic duo. Um, and then, you know, they um, wound up getting the first pick in the college draft that year and took Tina Thompson, um, who was coming out of Southern Cal. 
And so there they were, you know, boom with the, you know, what, what went on to become the big three. Um, and then they had a very, um, a coach who knew how to manage three superstars in Van Chancellor, who had been the longtime coach at the Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, before he took the, um, the Comets job. So it just was magical. They were great. There were other players surrounding them who, you know, who were equally valuable in their way. And I will say it was really incredible to see the city of Houston energized around this team. I mean, I remember vivid memories of going to Comets games at the old Compact Center and, you know, sold out crowds, all wearing red shirts. That was their team color. Um, just a very different kind of crowd than the NBA because we had so many women there and so many kids. It was, uh, it was like screaming. It was just you couldn't hear yourself talk. It was so loud in the building. And they loved that team. And so they, they went off. I think it was good for the league in some ways to have that. It really kind of helped put us on the map that we had this, this dynasty. Um, but, you know, it was a great thing. And, and very sad years later when the, the Comets ended up folding. And so they're no longer around. But, they wow, did they create some great memories for a lot of people. When you look at those early years, is there a signature moment that stands out for you? Well, there's so many, Brian. I mean, I think probably, you know, you start with just the league, the first game. You mentioned it, the uh, L.A. <laughs> New York game. I think it was June 21st, something like that, 1997. Uh, we were in Los Angeles. That was the very first game. It was on NBC. Um, you know, it was at the old L.A. Forum, Great Western Forum. So that's where the Lakers used to play. And it was the, the Lakers at that time were running the team. And I just remember being there uh, with Rick Welts, uh, now runs the Warriors, dear friend, um, Jerry, Jerry Buss, the longtime head of the owners, uh, owner, longtime uh, owner of the Lakers, um, was there. I mean, it was a crowning moment, to use that word again, for the league to sort of, it all came together in that night. And the fans, a lot of women in the stands who, um, you know, were very emotional um, about this happening, that there was now women's pro basketball league that was getting this sort of attention and this kind of treatment um, and, and, you know, this kind of respect. And so I would say probably, you know, that there are many, but I would say that one uh, was way up there just to see it all come, come into being on that glorious day in Los Angeles in June of 97. And you're in that position until 2005. Over that span of time, what did you see as the biggest advances, the greatest evolutions maybe within the league and what it was doing for women's basketball in general? Well, I, I would say the product, I mean, has, has really advanced in the last 24 or five years since we started. I mean, that's, uh, and I think that has to do with maybe to what you said earlier. I mean, you have young girls now who are growing up with the WNBA, watching it on TV. If they're playing basketball, they have something to aspire to that's tangible. Um, and so as a result, they're kind of throwing themselves maybe more deeply into their, you know, into their, de their development in the sport. And so I do think the quality of play has escalated dramatically since we started. That's no knock on the players at that time. There's just more really good ones now. The depth, I think, has, has really, um, you know, is visible. For the league. Um, so that that's, you know, that's one. Um, you know, I, I think certainly in terms of the network support, it's, you know, it's still there, which is important. Um, you know, we didn't have social media back then. So the advancements in technology that have created ways for WNBA fans to engage with the league 
are, are, are around, are, are, you know, uh, part of things in ways that they weren't when we started the league. So I think that, that any sports league will tell you that's been a, you know, a tremendous advancement. Um, and, you know, and, and last but not least, I think, you know, clearly WNBA players have taken it upon themselves to represent more than just basketball, uh, as we've seen with the league's, you know, embrace of, um, of social uh, causes. I mean, we had that early in the early years of the league. We were sponsoring, supporting everything from literacy to breast cancer awareness to fitness, really out of the box. So I would say the league was always cause oriented. Um, but I, I think that the players, especially today in basketball, have taken it to a different level. So I would say those are the main things that, that come to mind. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, these are the kinds of things and others that we haven't seen yet, foreseen yet, will, you know, combine to, to make sure that the league keeps going and keeps growing in, in years to come. For sure. Val, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a very busy, busy time for you right now, so I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. And of course, thanks again to all of you for listening. Look forward to catching up with you again next time. My name is Brian Swain, and this has been the 90s Basketball Show.